I've got three girls, three daughters. Uh, they're like, uh, our eldest was 20 the other day, and uh, the other two are 17 and 14. And probably until you have kids, until your kids get a bit older, you can think that you're like a really like trendy parent and you know what's going on and you think you're in with children and all that type of stuff. And then your kids get to a certain age where it becomes obvious that that's not the case. And they say things like, Dad, those were the olden days. And I'm like, no, they weren't the olden days. The olden days were like really old. But they say things like that. And, and we had one situation which, which we've never forgotten. It was quite recently with our girls. And, and we realized that the world was different to the world we thought we were in. And that was when we moved, we'd always made this decision that our girls weren't going to have uh, TVs in their bedrooms. Yeah, we'd already decided that. We thought, great, you know, we're not going to do that. They're going to, in fact, we created a room downstairs where they had a TV and they had PlayStation, all those types of things, and we weren't going to put it in their bedrooms. And so when we moved, we obviously didn't put a TV in the bedroom, uh, the, the bedrooms that the girls had. Um, but we suddenly found that we, we didn't see them very often. And we, we couldn't work out why. It took us a little while to work out that they didn't need a TV if they had a phone. They didn't need a TV. They didn't want a TV if they had a phone because on the phone, they could do things that I had never heard of at that time. They could BBM, they could WhatsApp, and they could do all sorts of communications with all sorts of people that I had no idea about. And I thought, oh, I missed that one. I hadn't realized that the world had moved on and that the girls didn't need a phone. They didn't need a TV. They needed a phone. And um, I was like gearing everything around ensuring they didn't have these things to protect some stuff when realizing that actually there were some other things. And I think, and often as a parent, you get caught out like that. You don't realize you're being caught out, but you do get caught out uh, like that. And so that's why I asked the question, what type of world will these children grow up in? Because in 20 years' time, these children will all be about 20, and some of us will be retired, uh, some of us may have gone on to another place and some of us will be in a different place. And, and you wonder what kind of world will it be when they get to that age? And what can we do to help? What does God require of us, uh, particularly if you're Christian, but what, what can you do to help your children? So today we're going to look at a story in the Bible. You may, you may, if you don't go to church, you've probably not heard of this story because it's not, in a sense, one of the famous ones. Um, you may have heard earlier they were playing um, Joseph and his Technicolor Dreamcoat. You've probably heard of that story. Um, this story has never been in the theatre. No one's ever done a song about it. Um, but it is a story that is very, very relevant to what we have just done because, in a way, this is what this family did, exactly the same thing. They did what we have just done. And it's the story of Hannah and Samuel. Hannah and Samuel. And the way we're going to do it is I'm going to look at various passages just in the first couple of chapters, looking at the beginning of that story. So I hope you can bear with me. I'll be doing a bit of reading, uh, partly just so you understand the context of the story. Um, and then I'll just be making one or two uh, comments on it. The first thing it's worth saying, because it's, it's, it's relevant and important, is, is nobody has control over, over the foundations of their life. Yeah, Cruz, Naomi, and Amber, 
They haven't chosen their parents. They were never given that option. They were born to who they were born to. They were born in the circumstances they were born. And for the first X number of years of their life, they will have no control over their lives. It will be what it will be. Yeah, that's the same for you. And that was definitely the case for Hannah and Samuel in this story. Now, just a little bit of background. Um, uh, Hannah was married to a man and um, she was barren. She couldn't have children. And uh, her, her husband, I know this doesn't happen today, her husband had another wife who had lots of children. And uh, that's part of what creates a tension for them. The context is this, though. In Judges 17 and Judges 21, it says this. In those days, Israel, which was the, the country they were part of, had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. Everyone did as he saw fit. And at one level, you might think, well, that must be great. Everyone just does what they want to do. But actually... No society will ever progress if everyone just does what they, do, what they want to do. Yeah? If there are no rules, if there are no boundaries, if there's nothing that says, no, I can't do that, I have to compromise here, I have to operate... If there's nothing like that, life wouldn't be as, as peaceable as it is. And some of you think, well, life isn't peaceable. But it would be very difficult if people simply did as they saw fit. But that was the context in which Hannah gives birth to her baby. Everyone... There was no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. That was the society that she grew up in. The second thing it's worth noting in terms of the background, it says in 1 Samuel 2 verse 12, Eli, who was the priest, and at that time he was the leader of the people of Israel, Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. So you've got a situation in which Hannah has a baby. We'll talk about that in a moment where the people just do what they want to do, everyone does as they see fit, and the leadership of the nation are corrupt. They're wicked. They have no regard for the Lord. And yet within that situation, some people are able to remain righteous. The nation's not righteous, the leadership's not righteous, but some individuals, some people are able to remain righteous righteous. And the story that we're going to look at is of one of those families. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, I'm just going to read a few verses. There was a certain man from Ramathaim, a Zufite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Joram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had none. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Penina and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her and the Lord had closed her womb. So we have a situation here where those are the sons of Eli are mentioned. 
uh, the nation is, is a bit corrupt, the leaders are a bit corrupt, but Elkanah, he's a righteous man. Even though the world around him isn't, he is a righteous man. And as far as it depended on him, he was trying to do the right thing. So every year, he takes his family up to make sacrifices to God. He's trying to do the right thing. He has two wives, one of whom is barren, the other of whom has children, and because she is barren, he loves her. There's some suggestion that she was, the, she was his first wife, and it was because she couldn't have children that he then married someone else. Because in those days, for women in those days, having children was their raison d'etre. If she couldn't have children, she was going to live a life of shame and embarrassment. She was going to live a life of always feeling second best. And that's how she was. So Hannah's specific issue was that she was barren. And it says the Lord had closed her womb, and because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival, Penina, kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. So you have a situation which, again, Naturally, we'd think, that's really cruel that that one woman, she can't have children, and as a result of that, the other woman basically laughs and mocks her because she can't have children. We're like, that's like really cruel. Why would you do that to somebody? Now, part of it might have been jealousy because it was clear to Penina that her husband loved Hannah, and maybe he didn't love her in the same way. And so out of jealousy, she responds like that, to her rival. And as a result of that, Hannah begins to get depressed. That's how we would say it. She gets depressed. The story goes on, and her husband Elkanah would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Now, obviously, he's no different to many men, is he? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? Of course you don't. Yeah? Most men are what, what? What do you mean? I'm not enough. Am I not enough for you? And she's like, you don't even get it. Yeah? Now, it's interesting. This is thousands of years ago, but things haven't changed much. Yeah? In terms of how sometimes as men, I've got three daughters and, and a wife, so sometimes my house is a place where I don't always get it. I don't always understand what's going on. And sometimes I think, oh, do you know what? I'm just going to go into the bedroom. Yeah? Because that seems to be the safest place right now. It was no different for Elkanah. He didn't get it. Hannah is weeping. She's not eating. She's downhearted. Today, she's depressed. Really depressed. She's down. And she's talking to her. Her husband's talking to her, and he doesn't understand. Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? I imagine that she just looked at him and thought, oh. She just looked at him. She didn't, he didn't get it. All of those circumstances were outside of her control. There was nothing she could do. Yeah? And sometimes we're in situations which are completely outside of our control. If you're barren, that's outside of your control. There's nothing you can do. If you're in a difficult circumstance sometimes, there's, sometimes there's nothing you can do. You might even feel trapped in your job because you think, I've got to go to work because I've got to earn money because I've got to pay the bills, but actually I just feel trapped here. I feel trapped. I feel harassed. I feel bullied. There's nothing you can do. 
And when we get like that, what happens? We respond not dissimilar to Hannah. We might not openly weep, but we might cry ourselves to sleep at night. We might not eat properly. And we might, in our hearts, be downhearted. Yeah? That's what happens when things go wrong in your world that you have absolutely no control over. It's very different if you have control and you can get up and walk away. But even today, we can't always do that. You can't always walk away from your trouble and from your difficulty. And Hannah definitely couldn't walk away from her trouble and her difficulty. There was nothing she could do to change it. That was her situation. That was her life. And what does it say? Year after year. So year after year, they go to the temple, and maybe that was the moment where her difficulty was more pronounced than at other times. When they go to the temple, and she sees Penina with all her children... It was a difficulty that she had. Yet we find this particular year, Hannah responds differently. She doesn't respond in the way maybe that she had responded before, been downhearted, depressed about the situation. This is what it says in verse 9. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on his chair by the doorpost of the Lord's house. In her deep anguish, Hannah prayed to the Lord and weeping bitterly. And she made a vow, saying, Lord Almighty, if you will only look on your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. Now, some of us, it probably doesn't even occur to us to pray in difficulty. But that's what Hannah does. So in her moment of deepest anguish and deepest pain, she prays. Yeah, That's her response. Her response is to pray, and she prays into the pain. She doesn't just pray about some other stuff. She prays into the pain. Why? Because her issue was she couldn't have a son. It was the thing she desired most in all the world was to have a son. That's all she wanted, a son. And she couldn't have a son. So she prays into the pain and she makes a vow to God. If you give me a son, if you would just give me a son, I will give him back to you. I'll give him back to you. That's quite a massive thing to pray. If in your heart of hearts what you want is a son, and part of the reason you want a son is because you can't bear what's going on over here. You can't bear the provocation. But she prays, I will give him back to you. He will be the Lord's. So the thing that she, des- she was desperate for most in the world, she at this point is promising that very thing to God. I am desperate for this. If you give me this, I will give it back to you. I'll give it back. The story goes on. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli, who's the priest, observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart. Her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where the thing that you're feeling is so, so, so deep, you can't bring words to it. You don't have words to express what you're feeling. It's deep. It maybe comes out in groans or it just doesn't come out. That's where Hannah was. It was deep for her. 
Eli thought she was drunk. So I don't quite know what he was observing there, but he's thinking she's drunk. And he says to her, how long are you going to stay drunk? Put away your wine. And for her, in addition to the pain she's feeling, that would have been a really, really difficult thing for the priest to say, I think you're drunk, sort it out. That would have been a really difficult thing for her to cope with. She says, not so, my Lord. No, you've misunderstood. Not so, my Lord. I'm a woman who is deeply troubled, she says. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I have been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answers, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. Now it's interesting because for some of us, the idea of praying such a prayer to God would be an alien thought, even for some Christians. That you could pray to God out of such anguish and grief. Because one of the natural responses to the situation she would have been in would have been to blame God. To have, to have looked to God and been angry with him because of what's happened. But what Hannah does is she, just, she prays to God. She responds like that. And then it's interesting what happens. After Eli says that, her response is, may your servant find favour in your eyes. Then she went away and ate something and her face was no longer downcast. So think about this. Nothing's changed. She's not had a baby. She's not now pregnant or anything like that. Nothing's changed. But actually, because she brought it to God in her deepest anguish, her depression lifts. She's no longer downcast and, she, and, she, and she's no longer weeping and she's able to eat. It's a massive, massive change. And it's come about because she's prayed. Early the next morning, they arose and worshipped before the Lord and they went back home. Elkanah made love to his wife, Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, because I asked the Lord for him. I asked the Lord for a child, and the Lord has given me what I asked for. The desperation, the desperate situation she was in, drove her to prayer. And as a result, God answered. And you know what? Sometimes... Situations are so desperate, they drive us to prayer. John gave the example earlier of John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace. Yeah? As, a, as a little boy, he grows up believing something. He goes on to become a slave trader. He actually ends up as a slave himself in a, in a part of Africa before he's released, and he comes back as the captain of a slave ship. When the ship is about to be, um, it looks like the ship is about to be wrecked and they're all about to die. At that moment, in deep anguish and fear, he prays. And what he says is this. He says, if you get me out of this, I will come to you. If you get me out, I'll believe. And at one level, anyone could do that. You could just say, oh, well, you know, if I do that, will God do, respond to me? What you find with John Newton and what you'll find with Hannah 
is that was a deep vow. It wasn't just a word. It wasn't just, oh, how do I respond emotionally in the moment? How do I impulsively say, oh, if you help me, then I'll be okay? It was a deeper thing than that. Because when he got out, his life turned around. He actually becomes a pastor. He actually helps William Wilberforce in those early days of, of the abolition of the slave trade. His testimony becomes one of the most powerful testimonies in, uh, in the ending of slavery. So sometimes situations are so deep, they drive you to prayer. So Hannah becomes pregnant. She has a child. The next year, as the family do, they go up to offer their sacrifices. And Hannah says to her husband, look, I'm not going to come up right now. I need to wean the child. When I've weaned the child, I'm going to bring him up and I'm going to do what I said I'm going to give him. I'm going to give him. So it says, after he was weaned, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ether of flour and a skin of wine. She's just trying to do the right thing and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, pardon me, my Lord, as surely as you live, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life and he shall be given over to the Lord and worships the Lord there. You see, Hannah does what we did here. Maybe there are different circumstances. But she brings her child to the Lord and she acknowledges God in the birth of her child. And that's all that we've done here today. She's acknowledged God in the birth of her child. The proof that Hannah's vow was more than words was the fact that she then says to Eli, I'm going to hand him over to you, that this boy might be raised. That's what I said to God I would do. I'm going to hand him over. It wasn't a rash promise. It was a deep vow. Now, it's interesting because this child is born through pain and suffering. He was a wanted, longed-for child. It wasn't like it had happened and she was like surprised and that this child was really wanted. You get the impression they could have afforded to keep him. She didn't have to give him up for economic reasons. She gave him up because she made a vow to God, a deep vow to God. And it's interesting because she gives him up to what we know is a corrupt temple. The leaders of Israel at this point are the priest and his sons and we know they're corrupt. They're wicked. Yet she still gives her child up to that. Why? Because in the end when she made that vow one of the things that had happened in her heart was she had realised this child is not mine it's yours. It's yours. Therefore, it's not about my ability to raise this child, protect, keep this child. This child is yours. The thing she wanted most in the world, she gave away. It's then interesting because her response to that, you might have thought, would be one of feeling bereaved. One of feeling desperate, one of feeling, oh my goodness, I've, yeah, it was the right thing to do, I said I would do it, but oh my goodness, it's just left me bereft. 
And actually what she says is this. My heart rejoices in the Lord. You see, Hannah doesn't get bereaved because of what she's done. Actually, she becomes more liberated because of what she's done. Because she gave the thing that mattered more to her in the entire world to God. Because she gave it to God, actually God filled her. She was no longer bereft. She was no longer depressed. Even though she didn't have the very thing that she she had desired, actually she comes out of that feeling very joyful. You can read in the beginning of chapter 2, this song of joy. I'm not going to sing it because I'm not really great at singing. But she sings this song in giving up her son Samuel to the Lord. She actually receives freedom and liberty in a way that you might never have imagined. She doesn't receive freedom and liberty through having a child and keeping it. She actually receives freedom and liberty by giving up the child that she's just had. It's quite an amazing story. It then goes on to tell us that Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord and he continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with men. He ministered in the presence of the Lord. So Hannah does something that we would have thought was a bit strange in that she gives up her son, the thing she wanted most, and she gives him up to a corrupt temple, to leaders who are corrupt. She gives him up to that. And yet Samuel finds favour. So although there's all this corruption going on around him, it looks like God looks after Samuel. God looks after Samuel in the very context that he's, that he's being raised. It's a difficult context, but he finds favour. So while everyone is looking at the leadership and not really liking them or not, or not really sort of appreciating them, they're looking at Samuel and they're finding favour. That's God. That's what God has done. God had shown himself. So when Hannah now reflects, I mean, later it says Hannah actually has other children, but that wasn't the point here. She has other children later. But at this point, when Hannah and Elkanah reflect on this period of their life, they could say this. God proved himself to be faithful to us He removed my disgrace. He took away my depression and he filled me with joy. And not only that, he protected my son. I trusted God to raise my son more than I trusted me to raise my son. That's quite a powerful thing for a parent. Now, please, we're not asking you to bring your children. Don't hand your children over. Yeah, raise them. But here, that's a powerful thing. As a parent, do you trust someone else to raise your child more than you trust yourself to raise your child? So I asked the question right at the beginning. What kind of world are Naomi, Amber and Cruz going to grow up in? What kind of world are they going to grow up in? You see, we live in a world right now where we see both the benefits and the challenges of our world being multicultural. We can see some benefits, but we see some challenges with it. I wonder what that will look like in 20 years' time. 
We live in a world where, where, where social media, it, it actually helps make the world a global village because we can all experience something in the same moment. If you think about the, the typhoon in the Philippines in recent days, we were experiencing that from our perspective at exactly the same time as they were experiencing that. 30 years ago, it would have been days before we heard. Now, we experience it at the same moment. So we live in a world where you can be 5,000 miles away and you can experience or connect into something that other people are experiencing. Now, our experience of it is different, but it's happening right now. That's very different to the way I grew up. What will that look like in 20 years' time? We live in a world where there is, in many ways, sexual confusion and sexual hypocrisy. We've got, we've got going on right now, you've got all the cases that have come out of the Jimmy Savile stuff. All of that's going on right now, and a lot of that was abuse of teenage girls. And at the same time, you've got people arguing to lowering the age of consent. So we live in a world where there is some confusion. And, and, the, and the main argument for this, lowering the age of consent from 16 to maybe 15 or 14, the main argument is it will give them access to NHS services that they don't have at the moment. Are we really going to do that? What kind of world are our children going to grow up in? What will that look like in 20 years' time? What will a world look like where we have, to some degree, put aside our, our values about family... We've just put those aside. What will that look like in 20 years' time? What will be the consequences of that? It's all well and good doing that, and we thinking it brings liberty and freedom, but what will it look like for our children in 20 years? It's all well and good us making those decisions, but we will not have to live those decisions out. Other people will. What kind of world are we going to raise our children Hannah had to face the same question. She had to face the same question that we have to face. And we don't know what the impact will be. But there are some things we can learn from this story as to what, what should we do. Particularly if you're a Christian, what should you do? What does God require of you if you're, you're raising your children in a world that you don't know what it's going to be like? There are three things that we can find from this story that they did that you, we can do today. And we've done one of them this morning. The first is this. Despite what's going on around us, as parents and as family, we can acknowledge God and give him thanks for the birth of our children. Now, at one level, that just seems a really, really simple thing. But I, but I actually think to God that's a really, really important thing. That if you're Christian, you will acknowledge God and give thanks to him for the birth of your children. Because every child is a miracle. And that's part of what we've done today. And I think it means a lot to God in terms of our worship to him. That we would acknowledge him. Secondly... Where you have that thing, for Hannah, the issue was barrenness. The deepest desire of her heart was to have a son. D. 
the deepest desire of her heart. And when everything went wrong in her life and she was out of control and she was down and depressed, what did she do? She prayed into the pain. She brought God into the pain. She didn't turn to drink. She didn't turn to drugs. She didn't just try and find another man. She didn't try and do all these different things that you could do. She prayed into the pain. And so for some of us, we need to pray into the pain. Because all those other things, you know and I know, they don't actually do it. We've all tried them. We've all tried different things. Yeah, the other day I got a bit down. I don't mean to be flippant. I got a bit down. Do you know what I actually did? I went and bought some chocolate. <laughs> like that was going to help me. It helped me for 12 seconds maybe, as long as it took to eat. I'm not trying to be flippant there. But sometimes we're trying to find ways of dealing with pain and suffering and we're just, we're just going about it the wrong way. Hannah prays into the pain, into the situation that she's struggling with, and she brings that to God. The third thing we need to do, and this might be more relevant if you have children, but actually it, it, it's relevant in another way for all of us, and this is deep and powerful. Hannah trusted God with her kids more than she trusted herself. She trusted God with her kids more than she trusted herself. And that's powerful because for some cultures, and ours is a little bit like that, we idolise our children. We give everything to our children. We want to raise and protect our kids as much as we can. And what Hannah did was she handed over her firstborn son, the thing she desired most in the world, she handed it over to God forever. And she, what she handed it to was corrupt. You would have been forgiven for saying to her, are you sure? Are you sure you want to hand it in to the priest? Really? Hers was, I made a vow to God, he'll look after it. He'll sort it. Now, as I said, it doesn't mean that we're bringing our children and leaving them here. But it does mean that we need to look to him for our lives and not to ourselves, if you're a Christian here. We are not to judge the world that we raise our children in. Don't judge the world you raise your children in. You just need to raise your children. It's not your place to judge. It's not my place to judge. It's not my place to say, oh, oh, that pl- oh no, no, I'm not, no, that's terrible. I'm not going there. Don't judge the place you raise your children in. Raise your children. We might need to be open to considering things that we thought were bad and they turn out to be good and and God can use things that we thought he couldn't use. But the question is, do we trust God with our kids more than we trust ourselves with our kids? For For Hannah... God answered her deepest prayers and needs. And when she gave up her kids to him, rather than feeling bereaved, she felt joyful. If you know the story, you'll know that Samuel actually becomes 
part of the saving of Israel. Her son becomes a key part of why Israel comes out of this world in which it was living, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and where the the leadership of the people was corrupt. Samuel wasn't corrupt. And so he changed the way Israel functioned. So this is a day of celebration. I know it's a day of joy. We're bringing our kids. But I don't want us to forget that when we walk outside these doors, we're raising our kids in a particular world. And what kind of world is it? And what are we doing to ensure we raise them as best we can? Let's pray. Father, we want to give you thanks this morning because you're a good God. Lord, that would be my experience, that would be my testimony, that would be what I find through your word, that you're good. And that just as you were faithful to Hannah, you have been faithful to me, you've been faithful to many here. And so, Father, I pray that this word that was spoken, these songs that we've sung, this act that we've carried out of dedication. Father, I pray that it will speak to whoever's heart is open to its speaking. I pray it will have impact wherever it's meant to have impact. I pray, Father, that we will look to you more than we look to ourselves. We will trust you. We pray again for your blessing upon those families and upon those children. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're just going to sing a final song, um, if Ben's around.